Welcome to Career Tours. This week, Communicating Across a Language Barrier, Chapter 1, Part 2. The questions this class answers are, how do I present to an audience with a different first language to me? How do I work with a colleague who has a different first language to me? And how do I communicate across a language barrier? When a company's looking to cut back, what's the first thing to take ahead? You guessed it, the training budget. However, it's because learning a lot of theoretical knowledge leaves us going back to the office feeling energized, but with no plan of attack, unfortunately, all is forgotten after a few short weeks. That is, until manager tools. Come to one of our effective manager, communicator, or interviewer conferences. We'll send you back to the office, not only energized, but also with a step-by-step plan of attack guaranteed to improve your results and retention. Register today at manager-tools.com forward slash training. Sarah, you and I had a great deal of fun last week talking about language barriers and the things to do and not do to help you communicate or people communicate with teams or customers or clients or anybody really who has a different first language to them. And many people speak English because it's the language of business and it's the language of the world. But many people speak English as their second or some, in some cases their third or fourth language. And it's much harder for them to comprehend than it would be if we all spoke whatever their mother, mother tongue was. In these two casts, we want to help people with some guidance about what to do and what not to do to help the communication go better when you're talking to people who have a different first language from you. Last week, we covered say it again differently, use short common words, don't use idioms, and now we're on to jokes. So don't tell jokes. Don't use jokes. And we're not anti-fun, for clarity. We're not gearing up for workplaces to be so serious that no one has any fun while you're there. It's just that jokes themselves can be really hard to understand, especially when you're not a native speaker to the language. Right. I read this thing. A Japanese joke I read uh, goes like this. There aren't any dentists in Hawaii. And the other person would say, why? And the answer is because their teeth are good. And apparently the joke is that the word for Hawaii, that the island, and the phrase for teeth are good sound the same. So there's like a homonym between the two. And you would never guess this unless you are speaking Japanese. And probably even if you spoke Japanese, you may not get the joke. You'd be like, why, why do they keep repeating Hawaii? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> So it's not only that the joke doesn't work, it's completely incomprehensible. It's like, why is this even funny? Like, why, are these, why are these Japanese people killing themselves laughing? Although <laughs> it does actually sound like a really bad dad joke, but it demonstrates that a joke from a different language is incomprehensible. Absolutely. Jokes aren't just about someone's language ability. There's oftentimes a cultural context that makes something funny or not. So there's that thing, that British saying, if you're the same age as Wendy, you'll know why he's got an ology is funny. It's hysterical. Right. Now, apparently, it's from like a 1980s advertisement for a phone company. There is no way. And we're both English speakers. I have no idea what that means. That makes no sense to me. 
even other British people. Yeah, even when I'm at home, if somebody's much younger than me and they don't remember the ad, they don't think it's funny either. And I'll be killing myself because it's hysterical to me, but nobody else gets that. And that's the same language, and we don't all get the joke. Right. And puns and sarcasm, those two things definitely don't come across the language barrier. And you might well be thinking, well, some of my audience is going to get it, so some people will laugh. And you're probably right. The thing is, it's alienating to be the person in a meeting where everyone else is laughing at a joke except for you. Or even when some people laugh and you don't. When people are busy thinking about the fact that they didn't understand the joke that you just told and feeling like they're not part of the in crowd, right, or part of the gang that gets it, they're not thinking about the entire purpose that we are presenting. That is the content. And if the object of our presentations is to be persuasive, which it absolutely is, then pushing the audience or some of the audience members into a state where they absolutely cannot be persuaded is just a waste of effort and time. It actually turns some individuals in the crowd against us inadvertently. And you don't want that. And again, we're not anti-fun. We have a lot of fun. We tell jokes and we laugh at one another too. It's just that when you're talking to a multicultural or a multi-language group, jokes are not effective. They're not bringing the audience closer together like an in-joke would. Sometimes if you tell a joke and there's a bunch of people there who all understand the joke, they feel closer because they all understand the joke. But that's not happening if you didn't have the same upbringing and you don't speak the same language. What you're doing is creating a barrier between you and the people you're trying to persuade, and there's no way that's effective. And if this isn't a one-time audience... You might be able to, over time, in the future, with this same group of people, be able to use more humor. Because over time, you can explain why, here's one I made earlier, is funny. Or why the words conjunction and junction go together in your mind. The person you're talking to would never really quite get the joke, but it becomes part of the joint humor. Like Wendy just said, you feel like you're part of that in-crowd. You have inside jokes between one another. Yeah, Mark Mark knows his my his one I made earlier is funny and he knows why it's funny because I've explained it. But like he didn't grow up at the same time as I did. He doesn't know why that phrase is significant, but he knows why it's significant because I explained it. And so that conversation that we had gives us it's it's not the same joke, it's a different joke, but it's in the same kind of ballpark and it's set off by the same phrase. Because we've worked together for a long time and we've had times when there's been time to explain the joke. And there's other jokes that he's told me or things that he's told me are funny for whatever reason. And again, we have this joint point of humour, even though I wasn't originally there for whatever the joke was. Yes, that absolutely happens with groups of people. But in the beginning, if this is your first time with this crowd or maybe you're only presenting to this crowd one time, you don't have those things. So... It's easier to stick to easy words, easy sentences, tons of examples, just to make sure that you're actually being understood. Because after all, being understood is the entire point of communicating something. No point otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Our next point is don't use contractions, which is funny because we just said 
don't use contractions. And then there's a don't in the contraction. When I was writing that, I was giggling away to myself. But the contractions we use in our language, things like don't and won't and haven't, are replicated in other languages. It seems to be a human trait that we talk as quickly as possible. And I think that's because when we were on the savannah hunting lions, it was really good if somebody could say, there's a lion coming for you quickly. The sooner the better. (laughs) And it was probably useful then to be able to speak very quickly, but it's not as useful when you're sitting with a group of people who don't speak the same first language as you. It's actually possible to communicate with a very limited vocabulary. Just 200 words is enough to get you through the day-to-day of communication. When you use contractions, what you're actually doing is expecting other people to have learned the vocabulary that they needed in order to understand what you're saying. Because now you're using alternate variations of the words as well as the words themselves. Right, so they've learned 200 words. They're really like, okay, I got enough words to be able to communicate. And then you introduce haven't instead of have not. And now they've got to learn another word that means the same thing. And, you know, that's not helpful. Uh, so you're just, you're just asking people to learn more in order to be able to communicate with you. And communication is a task that requires two people. It requires the speaker and the listener. So why would you expect the listener to take all the burden of the communication? Especially if it's you that wants to communicate, right? If I want to tell Sarah something, it's my responsibility to make sure that I use words that she can understand. It's not fair of me to expect her to do all of the work, and I just talk how I normally talk, and expect her to do all the work of understanding me We adjust our speech all the time. We adjust our speech if we're talking to someone much younger than us. We adjust our speech if we talk to someone from a different area or a different company. Or we change our speech when we talk to servers versus uh, our clients. You know, they're two different things. We change the vocabulary we use. How many people go into Starbucks and ask for a grande? That's not English or American. That's sort of Italian. (laughs) It's a bit twisted. But we've all learned that if we want that size of coffee, then we have to ask for a grande. Because if you ask for a medium in Starbucks, they give you a funny look. So if we can learn those, because there's an end result that we want, right? Everybody learns grande because... If I don't say that, I don't get the coffee I want. And so there's a real incentive there. And now we just have to translate that to all of the communication we do. If we're communicating with someone else and we want to get the end result of that communication, then we have to make some of the effort in making ourselves clear. And that means using words that someone with a 200-word vocabulary would understand. Absolutely. And while we're on the topic of uh, contractions... We should probably also include into this group abbreviations. In fact, it's just, it's a really basic rule of communication. Since so many of our abbreviations are company or department or profession specific type uh, abbreviations, if it is possible that the person you're communicating to will not understand the abbreviation that you're using, then a good rule of thumb, don't use it. According to uh, abbreviations.com, There are 64 different meetings 
for the abbreviation ADL. So it's easy to get a meaning wrong. And the abbreviations, I feel like they're all about how you interpret them. When I read ADL, that says to me activities of daily living because I have a healthcare background. But that's not the same meaning of that abbreviation to anybody else. It's all about interpretation. It is. The electricity supplier in San Antonio, where I am, is CPS, Central Something Services. But the CPS, whenever I see it written, I think Child Protection Services, which is what the Americans would think. And if I see it written in something in, in, in British English, I think Crown Prosecution Service, who are the people who prosecute people on the behalf of the government. So three different places in my life, the same three letters mean different things. It's really easy for us to dash off, you know, hey, have you done the TPS report? But if the answer is going to be yes, but that answer isn't correct because the person didn't know what you meant, then you're no further forward than before you asked. It doesn't make any sense to communicate in a way where you'll get false information. And abbreviations is just one of those places where there's just so many different variations of meaning for the same combinations of 26 letters. It would be better to cut out abbreviations altogether from your language. And then the next piece of this is don't be afraid to ask for readbacks. As a communicator, you want to make sure you've communicated what you wanted to communicate. Some of us can absolutely be shy about asking whether or not someone has understood us. It can almost feel at times like a bit of an insult to say to someone, did you follow me? Because it assumes that there's a possibility that the person didn't follow you. And that might be their misinterpretation as opposed to yours. But on the other hand, some people don't like to ask, did that answer your question? Because the person might say, no, that didn't answer my question. And that's our fault as the communicator versus theirs as the listener or the the one interpreting. Either you didn't answer the question correctly or you didn't answer it well. If that was your best answer, (laughs) now you're trapped. How do I make my best answer better? Because they didn't understand it. I often think about this at conferences when... Uh, you or Kate or Mark are, are presenting the Effective Manager Conference, for if, for example, and you'll say any questions and a question will come up like, I have a team with 15 people and they work seven different shifts. How do I make one-on-ones happen? And I just think, oh gosh, I'm so glad they're not asking me that question because I couldn't think about it off the top of my head. But one of the things I notice is that you and Kate and Mark always say afterwards, does that make sense? Or does that answer your question? Or is that okay? And you always offer to follow up, you know, talk to me in the break or talk to me at the end or send me an email if you've got kind of follow-up questions. And I always think that's terribly brave because I feel like if I had to give that answer off the top of my head and then say, does that make sense? There's a real risk that I didn't explain it properly or that that person didn't follow me because I didn't use the right words or whatever. But the the people who are real communicators do ask those questions because the object of the presentation isn't to show how wonderful the presenter is. Presentations are not about the presenter. 
They're about the audience and the communication to the audience and the un- the change in understanding that the audience has. And if that means as a presenter, as Mark sometimes says, you have to stand on your head in the corner of a room with a pink tutu on, and that's the thing that will get your message across, that's the thing you have to do. So even though it's uncomfortable saying, did you follow me, or does that make sense, or does that answer your question, it doesn't really matter that you're uncomfortable, because it's not your comfort level that matters, it's the audience's understanding. You're absolutely right. And I also, I also find that in groups like that, if you give your best answer and it is not understood, oftentimes someone else in the room can do a better job of explaining it the second time because they heard it. And if there were gaps or, or holes in your explanation or places where it may have been slightly confusing other people who are listening to that answer can probably interpret it slightly better. So there's that awkward of, oh, geez, I should be the one answering this question. And now someone else is doing it for me. But you kind of have to get over that. You can't perfectly communicate to every single person. So if someone else hears a hole in your explanation and they can fill that for you, it absolutely helps. You want to ask people in your audience just to repeat back to you what's just been said and make sure that they've understood the material as well as they possibly can in that they're able to repeat it back to you. And those two things can be very separate. Being able to read something back to you doesn't necessarily mean that someone has understood or absorbed the meaning of it. You don't need to do it in a way that's patronizing or insulting. You can make it a quiz or make everybody do it. I mean, 30 seconds, everyone needs to give a quick breakdown of what you just said, regardless of their first language. And maybe in order of alphabetical sequence so that no one's being called out. Right, you get the whole team to do it and you make it some, some, you put some other kind of constraint on it just to get people to explain it. And one of the things that just made me think of, I'm interrupting and I'm going off the show notes, but one of the things that makes me think of is, you know, when you're at school and there's like three people in the class who always raise their hand for all the questions, Mm -hmm. which is true at conferences as well, actually. There is always three people who know all the answers and there's probably three people who never speak in the entire day apart from to say good morning. It's important to make sure that you are asking the people who aren't speaking It's really easy to say, okay, I've just presented one-on-ones and I'm going to ask someone if they've understood the concept. And I say, does everybody understand that? And three people raise their hands and say, yeah, we understand it. And this is what we think you just said. And they probably got it right. But it's the people who aren't raising their hands that you need to look for because those people are sitting there thinking, I don't get this, but it's all right because we're having lunch in an hour. (laughs) No, exactly. That's exactly it. It happened to me last week, actually, when I was presenting. I said, is everyone familiar with or does everyone know what Toastmasters is? And the vocal people in the room, of course, yeah, yeah, we get it. I heard no no's. And then we proceeded with the activity. And I had two people separately call me aside real quick can you explain to me more about what this Toastmasters is? So, yeah, you you need to pay attention for... I am, that's insulting to you. No, it's not at all. And I understand it. You, people ask you what... To, when I say I'm in Toastmasters, yeah, I get 
comments about wine and toast and it's about neither of those things it's about improving your communication skills um but yeah there's a lot of people who don't know what it is and it's not very i mean if you think toastmaster and giving a toast and being a master of that communication it does make sense but if you don't connect it that way it's it's not a very obvious name for what it is it should be like the better communication club or something so like you said when you ask people hey do you know what time of toastmasters is okay then the rest of this will make sense there are people who say yep got it understand it i know i'm a member i know someone who's a member whatever yes exactly and then there are people who haven't said anything they don't say no but they don't understand what's going on. Right. And that's a concern because the point is that you are communicating with everybody, not just the people who raise their hand. Exactly. And if it's those individuals, if you you think someone might be shy or feel intimidated by being called out, you can always follow up with them in a one-on-one later. If you're not sure that somebody is understanding or you feel like there might be gaps in the understanding, you can absolutely talk about it in a one-on-one or, or a situation after the meeting, loop around. So did you get all that or is there anything I can help you specifically with? And if they're your direct, you can also give feedback about their level of understanding and willingness to say or to admit when they may not understand something. That's important. If the feedback is not really about whether or not they understood, as long as you think they were listening. The feedback is your willingness to say, I don't understand, or ask questions, because that's important. Absolutely. Now, there is an advantage here in having more than one person who speaks another language. So if you are in a group, Sarah, when you go to present in Germany, and there's you and a bunch of people who speak German, uh, <laughs> yeah. there, there is an advantage to having a bunch of people who all speak the other language in that If one person can tell you accurately what you just said, you can ask them to translate for the people who aren't getting it. And you kind of said this just now, but we'll just say again, because communicating, somebody might have missed it. So there's a real advantage if you have a group who all speak the same first language, and that is that if one person can accurately tell you what you just said, you can ask those people to translate it to the second language. Like you just said about people who work in companies and sometimes they interpret interpret your answer more easily for someone else who works in that company. It's the same with language. Like when you go to Frankfurt and you do the Effective Manager Conference, all the people in the room speak German apart from you and they have varying levels of English. And in general, a German's level of English is like everybody else's level of English. They're really good. But sometimes there's concepts that are hard. Concepts are very hard in foreign languages. And so it's harder. And so if somebody has more history or more background or more vocabulary around something or just are better at translation, they can help you explain what you're trying to say to other people. And the other thing they can do is help you understand the way they're explaining it. Because sometimes language and the words we have change the way that we think about concepts. It's kind of complicated. So if you think about English, we tend to think about time as a distance. So we say, it's been a long day. Like, I had to go a long way through today. You know, there were lots of places I had to go. Uh, even if those are just, you know, uh, recording a podcast, like that's a, that's a place, that's a way station on my day. 
if you say the same thing in Spanish or Greek, you say the day has been full. You think of it as volume. Now, these aren't universal. This isn't the only way people think about time. It's perfectly normal for English people to say, I'm having a full day too. It's just that probably most of the time, if people aren't thinking about it, this is the way they think about time. So the English speakers are thinking about a distance they have to go, and the Spanish and Greek people are thinking about a container that they are filling. So if you think about that, and now I want to explain time, and I am explaining something, some concept that happens over time, and there's a graph. So if you imagine a graph, the vertical axis is whatever I'm, whatever thing happening. Uh, the number of times I go to the dentist in a year, for example. And the bottom axis, the horizontal axis, is time. Then if you think in English, you will probably think that the far left-hand side of that horizontal axis is when I'm born. And the far right-hand side is when I'm 90 or 100. And the line, you know, shows how many times I go to the dentist according to my age, going left to right. But if you think of time as a container, if you think of my life as a bucket that is filled in part by the number of times I go to the dentist, that graph becomes much harder to understand. And it's a simple example, and I'm not saying that Spanish and Greek speakers wouldn't be able to understand the graph. They would. It's simple. But there's something about the different ways that the language describes that concept that you can see it would make it harder to understand something very simple like the number of times I go to the dentist. Now, if you're doing something that's more complicated and you're adding more complex vocabulary and there's a time limit because you've got a one-day conference or a 20-minute presentation, you can start to see why language and understanding the way a concept is described in another language is helpful to you as a communicator, even if you don't speak that language. So having someone who can, who has got it, like, oh, you've understood it, now explain to me how you just explained it to them. That will help you the next time you have to explain it to speakers of that language. All right, so in summary, guys, we have a responsibility as communicators to make sure that the communication happens. The definition of communication happening is not, are you creating sound waves? It's not that, are you saying some words? It's that the message you're delivering is understood. It's that what you said can be taken and be used by another person. It's confidence in comprehension, not just someone understanding the gist of what you're trying to get across. And there's a lot of think, lots to think about here. Communication is really important, and so it's worth doing the work to make sure that you're understood in as deep and a complex way as possible. Good summary, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. As a manager, it's your responsibility to groom a second-in-command. One day you'll have to leave your team to move on to bigger and better things. Don't leave them in the lurch. Leave them with someone who's been groomed to take over. Bringing your 2IC with you to the Effective Manager Conference is the ideal way to train them to be a Manager Tools Manager. Sign up today at manager-tools.com forward slash training and let us train them for you. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more guidance.